This is a Founding Media podcast. This podcast episode is brought to you by our friends Traverse Legal. They were super helpful as we started founding media in the podcast network. Traverse Legal has been changing the way law is practiced since its own founding in 2004, with a focus on utilizing technology to better deliver IP and business law services to founders, startups, and emerging growth companies. Traverse Legal's latest offering, Traverse GC, provides a monthly fixed fee, fractional general counsel offering to companies. Learn more by visiting traverselegal.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Great Society Podcast, a show about the people who are working to elevate the voices of others. My guest today is Amy Bench, an Austin-based filmmaker and cinematographer. We talked about humanitarian filmmaking and how you know which stories to tell. Here's my conversation with Amy. Thanks so much for joining us today, Amy. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, so I wanted to talk to you today because you've taken something that you've done professionally and used it to raise awareness for things that you care about. Tell me a little bit about your background and what led you to humanitarian filmmaking and photography. It's been quite a long journey. Um, I actually started my career in engineering. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And it was, um, September 11th happened basically... I think it was a week after I started my job as an engineer. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes big events sort of make you think about your life. You question um, your, the direction that you're going. <clears throat> and so for me, September 11th was like a kind of a wake up moment of, okay, is this where I want to be? Is this what I want to be doing? Um, and I did stick with engineering for a couple of years, but during that time I worked on ways of exploring different career paths. Um, so I, I was studying art at the same time as I was working as an engineer and I was developing my photography skills. And I worked for a couple of years because I wanted to make my education pay off. Uh, basically, I wanted to, to, to give it my best go and make sure that it was really something that I wanted to move away from before I quit. So there was an art instructor that I had at the Rochester Institute of Technology. I worked in Rochester, New York um, after college. And RIT is a, a great art school, and it, it accepted me as, a, as an undergrad mm -hmm. <laughs> art student, even though I was a full-time engineer and had an undergrad degree already. And it was just a great experience of exploring self-expression, so one of my instructors at RIT, Clifford One, who's still an instructor there, he's a painter, and I was taking a painting class with him. We were talking about my work, and he mentioned that I could be an artist because I was very sensitive. And he just put it so plainly and simply, and I had never thought of it that way. I had always been interested in art from a, I, as a young child, and I didn't really know how to execute that mm -hmm. or or how to realize that because I didn't have any role models in my life that were pursuing that path. So did you feel like you needed to be an engineer? Is that what took you into engineering? Or? Yes. I felt like I needed to be doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I needed to make money. I needed to support myself. And that was a clear and direct way of doing that. Mm -hmm. And art was something that was more of a passion, but but harder to, harder to fall back on, harder mm -hmm. to make a life and a career out of. But when he, he kind of validated my 
experience as an artist, even though I was a young, I was 21, I think. Um, I was young at the time. His validation helped me. And he also said, you don't necessarily need to make work that's political. And I thought that was interesting because I, you know, we're here on Great Society talking about how to use your work to elevate people and to increase equality. And so Clifford and I were talking it's funny because in art school, you call people by their, you call instructors by their first names, mm -hmm. whereas in engineering school, you call everybody by their last names. <laughs> it's so like it's a Montessori like... <laughs> kindergarten thing too, yeah. <laughs> so Clifford and I were talking and and he said, you know, you don't have to make work that's political. And he didn't mean by that, don't make political work. Mm -hmm. I think what he meant is any work that you do is inherently going to be political because it's coming from your point of view. Mm -hmm. And that felt very liberating to me. Um, it was there that I explored the idea of filmmaking. It's funny in a painting class that that's where I would come up with that. But he had a storyboard as an exercise of storytelling. So we had to draw, I think, a series of four images because normally you can s tell a story in three images, but four is a little bit more difficult. So mm -hmm. it was kind of like a stretching your brain a little bit. And I just fell in love with that exercise and those words have stuck with me. So I ended up quitting my job eventually after three years to the day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> three years to the day was my last day. And I moved back to Texas and I worked on a film in East Austin, actually, called House of Elegance. Mm -hmm. And it it's a short documentary on a hair salon, which no longer, well, actually, it does exist, but the building has been sold to UT, actually. It's a historic building. Mm -hmm. Um, and I made House of Elegance and I used that film that it's basically a, a short documentary on a African-American hair salon. <clears throat> I used that film to apply to the University of Texas and study filmmaking. And that's sort of how I got started in my career. So you're currently juggling work as a professional cinematographer while making your own films and photos and then also being a mom. Um, how do you balance that tension between needing to make a living as a filmmaker, but then also wanting to make projects that you care about? So it has taken me, once I graduated from film school, I began working in camera departments of various films. I moved to New York City, actually before I even graduated, and I interned at Maisel's Films, which if you haven't heard of Albert Maisel's, you may not know his name, but you've probably seen some of his works. He and his brother um, were known as the Maisel's Brothers, and they shot films on The Beatles, on Marlon Brando, um, they, on the Rolling Stones, a number of seminal works, they, they made Grey Gardens. Um, and I got my start there and I worked for probably five years before I really made another film on my own. And it's because I was cre pursuing a creative career, I needed to get to a point where I could support myself before I could take time off to make my own projects. So... That is still, that balance is still something I have to think about on a daily basis. Um, working in a creative field is fairly competitive and takes a lot of heart and a lot of sweat to get through, to, to, to get work, to make work happen. And so there's not always a lot of time to make your own work if, if you're trying to support yourself. So it's, it is a, it is a constant juggle. 
I'll, I will say that. So it's become now that I've had kids, it's three things that I'm drug juggling, but all three kind of work symbiotically because the films that I work on for money as a career, I, I'm lucky that I've been doing this long enough. I've been a filmmaker for about 10 years now. I've been doing it long enough that I, I have more options. So I'm able to turn down work. Whereas when I was first getting started, I was seeking, seeking and hungry and needed to work on whatever I could. But I can choose projects that align with my own moral compass and um, speak to things that I, I care about. So my my personal work and my professional work overlap a great deal. And I think my kids fit into that, too. It is a lot of work being a mom, but it's something that also fuels me creatively because they give me a lot of love and compassion in return. And so if I, if I feel exhausted from work, if I see them, they kind of re, reinvigorate me. So it's just a, a constant evaluation, which I think is healthy for anybody to do, to step back every now and then and ask, is this project something that I care about and something I believe in? And is it moving me in the right direction? So your most recent photo series is Things We Left Behind about refugee women. And um, a film that you've been working on is A Line Birds Cannot See is a story of a young girl coming to America from Guatemala. How do you choose stories that you work on? That's a really tough question um, because I, I, don't, I don't find stories easily. But what, what inspired me to do this work was I had been working – as a cinematographer for a number of years and hadn't been doing a lot of my own work. I did a series of photographs after my son was born as a way to kind of re-enter the workforce and to challenge myself creatively. When he was about four months old, I have two children. And when he was about four months old, I started photographing. And so that was kind of kickstarting me back into creating my own work again. And I've always been having like an ear to the ground to to discover new ideas and for projects to, to work on. And it was a, it was a sh series of short films that I worked on with Jessica Goudeau, who I met on that set. We did a, th a series of three shorts called Ask a Syrian Girl for Teen Vogue. And that was in 2016. And that sort of opened my eyes to a whole community of people that live in Austin that I wasn't aware of refugees and the plight of refugees and the ideas of immigration were all abstract ideas to me until I met these amazing young women. I think they were ages, their age ranges were from 14 to maybe 20. So they were very young, but very eloquent in speaking about their culture, speaking about their religion, speaking about misconceptions and it was really moving to me. And as a cinematographer, I'm responsible for the lighting and the camera and, and collaborating with the director. And, and this was a case where I felt like I would love to learn more and explore more on my own. And so that prompted me on a search to go into the community and meet more refugees and make work about them. And so that was the beginning of the photo series, Things We Left Behind, which is a series of portraits of women and objects that they either have here with them or they left in their home country. And I did a series of interviews with them too, all in their own native languages. So I hired translators 
And in that process, I also reached out to an organization who is in support of Latina and Latino empowerment called JOLT. Um, And they put me in touch with a young woman who had an incredible immigration story. And as I was recording her, I felt like this is the one, this is the person I'd love to make a film about. There was something, there was a, there was a fragility in her voice. There was an openness and a trust that is really hard to find with people that I knew was going to be really important to an audience to connect with. It's really hard to to find people that can be that open and honest. And she hadn't told her story that many times. She had kept it secret. She put herself through college on her own by applying to scholarships. She was a DACA recipient, so she was allowed to get a job after graduation. So she's very lucky. But at the same time, she hid who she was for so long. And so when I interviewed her, there was a freshness to her story that translated really well. And I think that really comes across in the film. So when you find a story, it sounds to me like you just, you start recording from the beginning. You don't look for financing. You don't kind of get ahead of yourself with a project or anything like that. You just start recording. Is that right? So I I did start the project without full financing. I think a lot of independent cinema, that's sort of the, the nature of the beast before people fund something, they want to see, they want to have a physical proof of concept. Proof of concept, And so you really have to start making the work before you have funding on board, I would say 90% of the time. As we continue to edit the film, then we sought additional funding to finish it. Okay. Are there any rules that apply to humanitarian filmmaking that don't apply to making a, a feature film or a documentary or something like that, or anything you need to keep in your in your mind or be aware of? I think with any type of filmmaking, you have to you have to be very gentle with your subjects. I think especially if you're working with a vulnerable population. When I interviewed the woman in A Lion Birds Cannot See, it sort of helped because I was pregnant at the time and I had a very short window that I could interview her. So we basically did a series of five interviews over several months. And they were all about an hour to an hour and a half long. And I kept it short because I couldn't go any longer because I had a family at home and I was also not feeling well pretty much halfway for for half the pregnancy. But it was also, I didn't want to traumatize her by having to relive all of these things. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. So I didn't, I didn't want to do any damage. I wanted to be there to to listen and to provide support, but I didn't want to put her through a lot in the process. So we took it really slow. It sounds like your fragility kind of helped you in that moment to kind of honor her fragility or her vulnerability of speaking about that story and that trauma. So Yeah, I, I, 100%. Yeah. Um, and so do you think of your, your films or your, or your photos of having like a point of view or an agenda, or you've kind of spoken about how not – you know, art is inherently political, but do you, are you trying to change the audience's mind or what is, what is the goal of your pieces? I think number one, the goal is to connect with an audience and, and help them empathize and understand in a way 
that they hadn't previously understood. Changing people's minds takes, I think, a lot of inputs. Maybe they see the film, maybe they read an article, maybe they talk to somebody who's gone through an experience. I think if we if we all add a little bit to the pot, then that can change someone's mind. I think if I worry too much about changing somebody's mind with a particular piece, it becomes an advocacy piece rather than a, a film. Mm-hmm. And it seems me, like a pretty fine line sometimes with docs especially, right? I think it's a fine line, but I think if you always go back to story and what is it that's going to capture the imagination of your audience. People ultimately want to be entertained, whether it's an advocacy film or an action movie. I think both can be equally entertaining. And and I think the more successful a political film is, I think the more you focus on story, the more successful a political film will be. So I try to focus on story and character and visuals. And then the undercurrent is hopefully something that will change someone's mind or change their heart. What advice would you give to artists, creatives, filmmakers who are looking to maybe get outside of their normal day job or their normal routine and try to make art um, based on things that they care about that are outside of their normal? I think just starting is probably the best thing you can do. So like in my experience, it's taken me from when I graduated undergrad to now, almost 20 years, to get to a point where I have found that balance of being able to spend enough time in my day making art and raising a family and working. So it's not going to happen overnight. Even when you see overnight successes, they're not truly overnight because most of us have been working our whole lives for this goal. So I would say any amount of time you can dedicate to something is perfectly great. And to not lose hope. Um, there's it, Art is very difficult because it's, it's exposing your soul and your heart. And there's a lot of criticism, and criticism is, is a great thing, actually, because it makes you better. But it's also hard to digest, so just go at a pace that that feels manageable for you. Um, so I would say reach out to other artists as you're growing for support and just keep making work. Even Lady Gaga, I was reading an article, has been panned so many times and and she's come back. Even artists at that stature have critics. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to keep making work. Is there anything kind of of a practical nature that you would recommend to artists, filmmakers, creatives to, to get going and to help them tell stories, either a process or a software or something like that? Yeah, I think I think the first step is to figure out what it what kind of story you want to tell. You may not know who you want to tell the story about, but think about what kind of story you want to tell and then start doing research. I always start with the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, funny enough, my first film, I found the location based on a list of businesses in East Austin. Mm-hmm. And I saw the name House of Elegance, and I was like, I have to go there. (laughs) It called to you. (laughs) And I walked in, and I had a camera in the car, and they let let me start filming that day. And I had no idea that was going to happen. But I would say be prepared and do research and, and 
find, try to fi- work on fine tuning your intuition because I think intuition can is a really powerful tool. It's not something that can be taught, but you yourself can learn what 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 you respond to and and to pick up those cues. And then for the technical side of things, if you want to be a filmmaker or a painter, a lot people learn different ways, but school is a great way. Four-year university is one way, but there's also nonprofits that offer classes. There's drawing classes that are, or sorry, drawing sessions that you can do at, through various nonprofits in town, and there's filmmaking classes that you can do in non through a nonprofit in town. And I think a lot of cities. We're lucky in Austin that we have a lot of these resources. But I think filmmaking is becoming much more popular because of the digitization of the medium that I think there's a lot of ways to educate yourself. And websites like No Film School, they teach you a lot of technical things. And I would say technical is really important. Learn it, put it in your back pocket, and then try to focus on the story and don't get overly technical. That's great advice. Thanks. Um, Are there any stories that you're looking forward to telling or that you have on the horizon? I'm hoping to tell a trio of stories about immigration. So A Lion Birds Cannot See would be the first film And I would love to tell a story about a refugee and about an asylum seeker. And I'm still on the search for finding the exact right subject. Okay. I'll keep you posted. Good. Thanks. Um, And so this is a question that I'm going to be asking all of our guests. Um, What does success mean to you? How do you define it for yourself, for your projects, or for your kind of... I don't want to say side hustle, but for your your side career of making films, uh, humanitarian films that you care about? Success is is a is a really funny word because I think it can be both it can be both a um, a motivator, but it can also be something that holds you back if you worried that if you start worrying that you're not being successful. So for me right now, success means being in a place and doing a thing that I love. And then that's an internal definition of success. And then, then it helps to get those external validations, like getting accepted into a film festival, for example, or screening a film and having a positive response. But I would say the biggest success I've had with making films about people is showing them to those people and feeling like I've changed their life in a way that I didn't even know possible. Um, When I made House of Elegance, the woman that I interviewed, I... I basically made the film. I was just a fly on the wall with a camera filming ladies getting their hair done and getting their hair washed. And it was kind of a comedy. And my professor at the time said, I think you need to interview Pearl, who is the main subject of the film. And I was like, okay, that's interesting because I was hoping not to do any interviews, but let me see what happens. So I interviewed her and and the things she said were just so heartwarming And she told me after the interview was over, I ended up using some of that as voiceover at the end of the film. It was a good way to end the film. She said, you know, Amy, until you made this film, until you interviewed me, I never realized how lucky I was to be where I was. I grew up in this salon. I would eat here. I would sleep here. I would have breakfast here because her mom worked so much. And now I realize how lucky I am to have this business and to to be in this place in my life. So thank you. And that to me was success. And I feel like that sort of sentiment has come from 
the woman I've made my current film about, she said, I showed my mom the film and we've had conversations about our lives that we've never had before. And to me, that is successful. If you can positively impact somebody in that kind of way. And it feels great because filmmaking in some ways feels like you're taking something from someone, you're getting a story out of them. And so it feels like you're trying to draw things out, draw things out, draw things out. And so when the film is done and you can show it to them and they have a life-changing conversation, that to me is success. Thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate your perspective and thanks for the stories that you're telling and that you're going to tell someday. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to my guest today, Amy Bench. To follow her work, you can go to her website, amybench.com, or to learn more about her film, Align Birds Cannot See, go to alignbirdscannotsee.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. The Great Society team includes me, Constance Dykusen, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you to everyone at Founding Austin for your support. Great Society is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on social media at Constance D. That's at C-O-N-S-T-A-N-C-E, letter D. Thank you guys for listening.